This is the Mooks and the Gripe podcast. Welcome, everybody. It's so nice to be back. Uh, Paul and I are just commenting that it still feels like we're not quite back to our regular schedule from the holidays, but but we are. But this is Trevor. Rather than Paul. No, wait, that doesn't work. That one doesn't work. Paul and I are both here. That's true. <laughs> That's a bad, I was a bad conjunction. <laughs> Well, and what I was wondering is today, since, uh, spoiler alert, we have a guest, I was wondering if you're going to come up with two or just leave it to me. Oh, that's way too ambitious. Yeah. I barely, I barely slipped that one in. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but as Paul said, we do have a guest today. Um, Ben O'Connell is joining us. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I feel uh, right at home with a couple of other Westerners, although I'm unbearded, so I'm not sure that I exactly fit in. But I really appreciate you guys asking me to be on. I was, I was, as I said earlier, I was very tickled that you asked. No, I'm, I'm excited. Um, just for listeners, uh, Ben has been a good friend on Twitter, um, someone we've corresponded with quite a bit about just books and things in general. But also about our show, um, you've, you've heard his name before because whenever we've asked for like a listener suggestion or feedback or uh, input, Ben, you've, I think every time, probably mm-hmm. submitted something for us to read. Um, you gave Paul a hard time for his thoughts on on uh, Shirley Jackson. And, uh, right. you know, we I definitely appreciated that. <laughs> well, appreciated my strong, but no. Yeah. There need to be some gripes, right? That's exactly. right. That's right. That's why um, you know people always uh, always wonder where the name came from, and it's from James Joyce. I never even thought for a minute that it meant that we had to gripe, but I mm-hmm. think you're right. I think you're right. Today, well, I think most people, since you're mooks, Trevor, I think most people just assume that I'm the gripes. So, <laughs> I, I don't think so, Paul. I yeah. I don't think so. You were exceptionally amiable. I don't think you've griped about anything on the show from day one. <laughs> I might have to lean, lean into my character a little bit over the years. <laughs> it's all coming, huh? You're building yeah, up for exactly. a big blow up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben, uh, I wouldn't mind if listeners got to know you just a little bit better. They don't, you don't have to like share any personal details or anything, but uh, give us a little bit about, about who you are and your, your love of uh, reading and books that listeners might be interested in hearing. Well, like you gentlemen, I was born and raised in the West, uh, in Montana, and I left for college and uh, have been, with one brief uh, San Francisco excursion aside, have been on the East Coast ever since. Currently live in Washington, D.C. I've been a big reader since I was a very little kid. Um my phases of reading i've had various phases of reading i'm currently a juggler i have (laughs) at least four or five things going at any given time it feels like um and uh i guess my my taste in reading is i I, i've settled on discriminating yet promiscuous in terms of how or what i read i like that and uh, that kind of leads into our first question where what does that mean you're reading right now, Ben? So the two I'm most actively reading, um, I'm when I was growing up, and I don't know if this was the same for you guys, but when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s, on every bookshelf in or in every home, <laughs> the bookshelves were filled with these uh, middle brow historical epics. 
you know, so Leon Uris and Alex Haley and and Herman Woke and James Clavell and James Michener. Um, <laughs> I just came back from a very brief trip to Hawaii, a very, very brief trip to Hawaii. And I thought, what a perfect opportunity to extend my vacation by finally reading something by one of these guys. Um, and so I picked up uh, Michener's Hawaii. So that is the first thing that I'm reading. And then I'm also reading a novel by, uh, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. I believe it's Sieko or Sicho Matsumoto, uh, A Quiet Place. It's a Japanese um, crime novel from the mid-70s about a man who's away on a business trip and his wife dies seemingly of natural causes, but under circumstances that he can't square with what he understood of her life. And so he's trying to figure out what happened. So those are the two that I really have kind of, I always have some other things going in the background, but those are the two that I'm, I'm making steady ground on right now. Well, all I know about Paul's growing up is that his waterbed had all the fantasy novels on it and his parents have all the Agatha Christie books, (laughs) but I certainly know all of the James Michener and my parents had them. And I actually started Hawaii back when my wife and I first got married because um, her family was planning on going to Hawaii. She ended up going with them and I did not, but for a similar reason um, I thought, well, I'll read, I'll read his Hawaii book. And I remember it was like the first, 80 pages like prehistoric or something like that. And I I was enjoying it, but I never finished it because I ended up having other commitments and, and uh, was starting uh, some stuff back East. That's when we first moved um, back East. We'd moved to New Jersey, like a couple weeks before the Hawaii trip. So I stayed there while my wife went and then I never finished the book, but um, are you enjoying it so far? I am. I mean, it's, it's largely what I expected. It's it's about <laughs> I'm about two hundred pages in, and uh, uh, he's a competent prose stylist, but I, I wouldn't say there's anything um, mind blowing about it. But I, I am enjoying it. I actually have kind of a long term uh, project, two, two related long term projects. One is to read something by each of these people, mm-hmm. uh, and James Clavell was. Actually, I read a short novel by Herman Woke that I loved, by the way. Um, and James Clavell, I read Shogun. So Michener was kind of the next natural step. Second related project is I really want to go back and watch some of the mini series that I watched growing up <laughs> based on some of these books after having read them. So Shogun is the only one that I've done so far. Nice. That if you do cool. end up revisiting Herman Woke, I would highly recommend Young Blood Hawk. I read I've that. Heard... Yeah, it was really, really good. It's about a, a young Southern writer and his rise and fall and all, you know, his fame and everything. And it's a really, really good book. And, and he's funny. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was really surprised by how much I loved what I've read of his so far. Um, so I, I read The Cane Mutiny and mm-hmm. I just thought it was spectacular. So. Yeah. Well, how about you, Paul? What have you been reading? And I'm sorry. I hope I hope I didn't uh, just dismiss your your childhood. Did you guys have James Michener and these others in your home? You know, we didn't really. Um, 
Although I saw them on a lot of friends' parents' bookshelves for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, they were always around, but I don't think we did have them in our home. But I will say probably 10 or 15 years ago, my wife picked up Centennial by James Missioner, which is kind of the Colorado version of the Hawaii book. Same kind of thing from what she described where it starts off formation of the, you know, the Rockies or whatever. And, you know, all these other like dinosaurs, I don't know exactly what all, but, and then goes through to Native Americans and the settlers and everything like that. And, you know, kind of what Ben described, she said it wasn't like sparkling prose, but she thought it was really overall. I mean, it's really stuck with her, she says, and like, she, she talks about it a lot, just how, what a fascinating concept to take. Kind of goes back to what we've talked about, Trevor, like that whole idea of taking one place and just focusing in on it over a long period of time. That does appeal to me. So maybe I'll give him a whirl one of these days. Well, cool. So, and what have you been reading, Paul? We'll, we'll yeah. So I'm happy to say, you know, my, my 2022 reading has kind of carried over my momentum from last year. I had such a, a fun and good reading year last year. And so far this year, I'm just, you know, batting a thousand, I guess. So one that I just finished was Cassandra at the Wedding by Dorothy Parker, which I touched on briefly before. Trevor, a few episodes ago, you mentioned there was an author. I can't remember if it was Barbara Pym or somebody who you'd never read before up to a certain point, but you already kind of knew she would be a favorite. Yeah, it was Barbara Pym. Yeah. And that's how I felt about Cassandra at the Wedding. Like just everything that I'd heard about it without having read it, I just knew heading in, like it had a good chance to be one of my favorite books. And yeah, it did not disappoint. Just absolutely stunning. Um, You know, the narrative voice is so well done. She's such an appealing character, but she's also very damaged, you know, so she draws you right in. Um, and then just the family dynamics that take place within the novel are so fascinating and, and realistic. There's that subtlety that you recognize right away from your own relationships, you know, granted, probably a, I don't have any relationships quite like the ones in those books, luckily, but, you know, it's just <laughs> she's very good at all that. So, yeah, I, I finished that. Absolutely loved it. And then another one that I just finished is Passing by Nella Larson. Um, both of these books I got for Christmas. So I kind of took them off the top of the pile. Um, and that's another one that just came highly recommended. Um, I wrote on Dorian's blog when I, he asked me to do kind of my, you know, year end reading summary. And, um, I feel like I have like this team of curators out there in the world who are always just sending me all these great books. And this is one of those where it was like, I probably would have heard of it otherwise, but I might not have picked it up right away. But everybody just kept talking about how good it is. And yeah, it's just a stunning book. I am very curious to check out the the miniseries that you mentioned, Trevor, or not the miniseries, but I guess just the movie that came out on Netflix from mm-hmm. that. So, but anyway, those are the two I've been reading. And then I just started reading Northanger Abbey, uh, revisiting an old favorite author. And it's been really fun. It's been probably 20 years since I've read that particular book. And it's just, anytime I go back and revisit Austin, I'm a happy guy. So is that in preparation for anything, Paul? Might be, might be. <laughs> Uh, we, we, we've never spoiled an author focus um, episode, not necessarily out of any policy that we have here, just because, I don't know, we've we've kept it between us. But I think it's worth telling people that yeah. if everything goes the way that we think it will, and I think it will, I don't see any reason why it would change, uh, Jane Austen will be our episode 25 author focus. So I was happy to see that yesterday when you sent me the Instagram thing that that's what you were reading. I thought, yeah. oh, I've, I've been... Um, uh, needing to get back to some of her stuff and so that I'm prepared to talk in, in a little bit more depth about her. Yeah. But, yeah. She was already on my list for this year, but when, when we kind of settled on her for our next episode, I was like, no time like the present. So yeah. Nice. 
I'll need to catch up. I've only read Pride and Prejudice at this point. So before episode 25, I'll try to <laughs> do some reading myself. If you slip something, or if we inspire you in that episode, you know, one way or the other. Um, yeah. I certainly love reading her books. I know that there uh, are plenty of fans and plenty of people who don't um, don't think that there's a whole lot there. But I think... I think we're in danger of maybe gushing a little bit much in that episode, Paul, just based on yeah. our other conversations. But <laughs> no, I would just ass- I would just assume if you're a listener, that's what's going to happen. So, so I am reading my, all of my. What are you reading right now? Got a little bit um, pushed aside when this big box with the books of Jacob showed up from Riverhead, and so in in the american edition it's like 970 pages starts on page 970 because it goes backwards you know 970 down to page 1 and that is a, a good project right now it is taking a lot of my time i've read several hundred pages i don't know when i'll finish it it comes out in about a week and a half um from this episode it'll be just a you know a little bit less than a week even before that book comes out but i am really enjoying it and it is a a kind of historical novel. Um, what Tokarczyk is, is doing is telling the story about um, a man, Jacob Frank, who was a proclaimed um, Messiah or proclaimed reincarnation of the Messiah that folks in that little area had, had thought had already come about a century before. Um, and the first part just gets you into the world, just introduces you to people and the situations. And she kind of goes from one thing to the other, to the other, to the other. And it was hard to get my footing, but I was enjoying every little section, but I'd always be like, what now what are we doing? Now where are we? (laughs) And it still is kind of like that, even as I'm getting more into the story of, of, of Jacob himself and those closest to him, but I'm really enjoying it. And it is not just pure history. One of the fun things is that one of the main characters is dying. And that has given her the ability to see all. And so she's kind of one of the perspective characters to help us uh, as her perspective on time has shifted from linear to this kind of whirl, almost Yeatsian um, image there. Uh, she's taking us from thing to thing to thing. And I'm really enjoying it. Uh, ju- I'll just say that right now. I, I really think it's a fantastic book, but it, it is still a, a very much in my face. You know, I'm right in the thick of it <laughs> kind of thing. I haven't I haven't been able to step aside and, and give too much perspective to it yet. Um, I will say, I think that it fits in very nicely with our topic today. Which, if you guys are okay, maybe I'll introduce really fast. Um, listeners probably will already know because it's going to be the title of the episode. But why do I read fiction? You know, why is this book written as a fiction book versus a just a nonfiction exploration of Jacob um, Frank and some of these people around the area? You know, and all of that. Why? Why have all these other elements? Why have speculation at all? Why have all of this? And I'm not going to answer that question about the books of Jacob, but I think it's a, you know, as I've been reading it and thinking about our, our topic today, I've thought, huh, why fiction? Why do I read fiction? And Ben, this was suggested by you, or at least maybe, maybe not suggested. You may have just written to Paul and me and said, hey, I was at a, 
uh, a thing the other day, and this question came up. I thought it was really interesting, and I think maybe one of us said, "Hey, let's have you come on, and we'll talk about it together." Uh, do you mind uh, kind of introducing, you know, where this came from and what you were, uh, you know, where where were you when when this popped up? Sure. So uh, I, I work for the cable network C-SPAN, and I was on. I was a guest for a group of Purdue students in Indiana who are interested in politics, largely. And the woman who would run this group, her name is Connie Debely, and she's a former C-SPAN executive. In fact, she founded Book TV. She was the Mm -hmm. person who started Book TV way back when. And Connie is a huge reader, and similar to me, will read pretty much anything or at least flirt with pretty much any reading and pretty much anything. And she's constantly consternated by the fact that so many of the people who she interacts with among the students refuse to read fiction. They will only read nonfiction and they will largely keep their, their, their reading uh, to politically oriented books. Um, And so she saw an opportunity to ask me, someone who works in political journalism, why do I read so much that it has absolutely nothing to do (laughs) with it? Because she's constantly trying to convince these kids to do the same. Um, So that's how it came up. Interesting. Yeah. The answer I gave at the time, and to be perfectly honest, I thought the more I'd think about this, I, I would come up with something far more profound. And, and I, I honestly haven't. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's so many reasons to read, and fiction specifically, but at the time what I said was, I can think of no other way to empathize with people who come from wildly different backgrounds than my own than through fiction. Nothing else offers that kind of interiority. Film doesn't. Music doesn't. There's nothing else. Nonfiction certainly doesn't that we can really get at um, what drives so many people under so many varying circumstances. And, And I think that that's still largely my my go-to answer. I don't know. What about you guys? My mind went to empathy first as well. In fact, I had my notes. We first started talking about this on September 23rd, just to give listeners a sense as to how long we've wrestled with this question that we'll all probably have fairly basic, simple answers to, to an extent. Um, And I wrote down empathy as well. Um, I don't know if that's because you shared with me your thoughts at the time. I kind of don't, no, I don't think you did. I think I said, oh, hold your thoughts. We'll talk about that. But one of the first things I wrote down with was empathy. There are lots of nonfiction books that I have enjoyed and that have given me a good perspective on historical events or even our current events. They may have shaped my views, but my views of my neighbors and of the people that I interact with and my my feelings toward them and my the things that have I think changed me as a human being I can point to William Trevor I can point to Alice Munro I can point to George Eliot as being the types of authors whose works as I was reading them 
revolutionized my sense of who the other person is and why they are so important to me and how I can better um, interact with people. And I don't think I've, ever, and I'm not saying it's impossible um, to get that from nonfiction or I, I, but it certainly has not been my experience. And I'd be curious if anyone could come on and defend that and say, Oh no, no, no. I, you know, got great empathy when I read this particular nonfiction book. And I guess maybe that can happen with a memoir. You know, nonfiction is a huge film. I mean, we go from the best-selling diet books to, you know, memoirs to political books about current events to, you know, history, uh, things like that. And I, I, I like nonfiction a lot. Um, I certainly don't want it to sound like I am putting one above the other today. I mean, I read more fiction. I like fiction a ton. Um, but that's the, one of the unique things that I would say is, has from, from my experience, been pretty exclusive to come from uh, the fiction that I've read. Uh, how about yeah. you, Paul, just as, a, as a, an initial lob? I've got some <clears throat> initial questions that might be good to go over, but so you don't have to like lay out your whole, you know, everything you've got lined up right. for us, but. No, I mean, to what you guys said, I, empathy is definitely where I go first or the whole idea of, I don't know if re- reincarnation is the right word, but it's like in fiction. Ooh, Paul's it, getting quite a, yeah, quite going for it. <laughs> no, it's just the idea that like, how, how else can you ever completely just immerse yourself? Like, like kind of what Ben was saying into somebody else's minds, experiences, you know, Mrs. Dalloway, for example, or we were talking about Jane Austen. <clears> I mean, like jumping back several hundred years and going into this society that you on the surface have nothing in common with. And by the end of the book, you feel like you've lived these lives. You understand them. You recognize the humanity, you know, the commonality between different people in different countries, different time periods. So yeah, I think that idea of empathy, but also just, I don't, I, it's connected, but the whole idea of, of literally being inside somebody else's brain. And I think to some degree that can happen with nonfiction, but like you were saying, Trevor, I think fiction, there's something magical about it where, you really do become that person for a while. And I think that's part of the reason that it becomes so immersive too. Well, Ben, one thing I did not know was the the way this question came about. Um, whenever I am asked this question, it's usually as a, it, it usually comes from a point of maybe a slight, if not overt antagonism. Why do you read fiction so much? Mm-hmm. You know, that. That's not even real. It's imaginary. You know, what does that have to do? You should be spending your time, your, your very little free time, learning more about the world. Um, but it sounds like yours came from a very different place, you know, a, a place of encouragement and of how can we how can we help people see the beauty of this? And I kind of like that. Because um, for me, when I think of parsing this question a little bit, it seems like the assumption, the underlying assumption is often, you know, fiction just isn't worth your time Um, where all of us here, you know, that's clearly not our view. Uh, It is worth our time. So I kind of like that, um, that that was what was underlying it. Absolutely. I mean, I I think that um, I don't know if you guys had the same experience that I did, but as a child, fiction could be wholly immersive in a way that starts to fade as you grow somewhat older. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was entirely absorbed in Middle Earth, in Arrakis, in Sherlock Holmes' Victorian London, or hanging out with H.G. Uh, Wells' Eli and Morlocks, or um, uh, Dashiell Hammett 
writing about Personville, his his fictionalized, thinly fictionalized Butte, Montana during the gangland 20s. And you you felt like you were there. Um, When Sturm died in Dragons of Winter Night by Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss, I was by his side and I was 11 years (laughs) old. As that faded a bit, I think when I was speaking to these college students, as that had happened, it was gone for them. And and Connie really wanted to ignite something in them that could get them back to fiction, if not for that exact same experience that they had as a kid, but for something that could be equally as enriching uh, in, in within their adult lives. I love that. In the, mm-hmm. our fantasy episode, I think Paul and I both kind of talked a little bit about that. And, you know, I've been reading more fantasy this last year, and we've talked about Brandon Sanderson books. It yep. does feel a little bit different, but it also has been reinvigorating. But it's it's not the same as when I was a kid. Reading these Mistborn books as a kid, holy cow, I can't even imagine how <laughs> much I yeah. would have been in that world and known every little bit and detail of it. It's close though, you know, it is, it has been fun. And I like that you brought that up because one of the dangers that I think we could run into in a conversation like this is in justifying the act of reading fiction, then then there's another underlying assumption that it needs justification, that there needs to be some other motive for reading it other than um, entertainment, other than the beauty that we find in it. And when we do that, I think we're often like, well, you know, yes, it, it is entertaining, but you can also learn empathy. And it's like, yeah, that's a beautiful thing about it, but it isn't the only thing or even the necessary outcome to reading a good book of fiction. And uh, so that was one of my fears too, is that I might be talking here and make it sound as if within fiction, there are also grades, which I know a lot of people believe, but there are also grades of quality. Like I will read fiction but only literary fiction, you know, I'm not going to waste my time with this, uh, this other, this other stuff, because then I am wasting valuable time when I could be developing human skills. And I'm like, no, I don't want that to come off either because, right. and I thought that might be a little bit of the danger. If we're trying to justify reading fiction, we might reach for these, um, similarly exclusive, exclusive areas of, of, you know, I, I read it, but, but only if it's, you know, healthy for me. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually bristle sometimes, you know, there's a lot of those articles that come out about it. I feel like they're basically trying to justify not necessarily reading fiction, but reading. Here's the benefits you get from reading. Kids who read end up doing better in college. They end up doing they make more money, you know, all this stuff. And I do kind of get tired of that whole idea of you're reading for these reasons specifically, like you need to monetize it or or there's some justification that needs to come. And I do think it's important to remember, like I'm glad Ben brought up. At the beginning, most of the time, it starts with joy, and throughout your life, it can continue to provide that, and it certainly does, I'm sure, for all three of us. So, yeah, not just fiction, but reading in general, I do get tired of that whole need to justify why you read when you could be doing other mm. things that are more you know, productive, or if you are reading, it needs to be with like some end goal in mind or whatever that might be. So, yeah, I think that's an interesting part of the conversation, too. Mm-hmm. Um, let me tell you, the... the this really jumped out at me when you reached out to us, Ben, because I think the night before I had been in my writing group 
it's just a small group. We get together. Sometimes we don't even write. Um, my wife goes, um, she gets most of her writing done when the rest of us start talking about, you know, books we're reading or I'll, okay, I'll confess. It's somewhat also the Brandon Sanderson fan club. Just a little bit. Okay. <laughs> let that out. I feel better now. <laughs> and she's okay with that. Cause that's when she gets to just sit and write and not be distracted by us talking about other things. But one of the, um, one of my friends there has been working for a while on a book, a story, a fiction, you know, some fiction. And he asked us that night that right before you, you, you tech, you, you sent that, that um, instant message, uh, Ben, he said, what do you guys think about nonfiction versus fiction? Because I like writing my fiction, but I kind of feel like I should be writing nonfiction as it's more valuable. He said, what do you guys think? Is, is nonfiction more valuable than fiction? And so he got me thinking about that and um, wondering how to answer him. And I know that in the evening of, I quickly answered no. You know, first off, if you're if you want to write fiction, write fiction. Like that's great, and there's going to be so much um, joy even if you never publish. You know, if it's just something you're enjoying doing, then do it. I guess I don't want to discourage you from doing something you feel you're being called to, or you know, want to do just as much, but maybe don't have the courage or something like that yet. But I remember telling him. Um, I don't think you should try to place one above the other in terms of its value because nonfiction, I don't know. I'm, and I'm a little worried about how I, how I will, how this will come across, but I thought with, with nonfiction, I think we often create falsehoods out of facts. You know, you're still going to give perspectives. You're still going to be interpreting. You're still going to be, um, trying in your and you're trying to limit yourself to the truth you're going to to take some missteps so if you think it's more valuable just because it's you know quote unquote true i think that that's the wrong approach and i said and with fiction you can create truth out of lies you know you can you can explore some things that you couldn't otherwise explore i really do think that i don't want to suggest therefore that i think nonfiction is lies <laughs> or that it's less valuable but i was trying to give him a perspective my perspective that both of these are fairly noble pursuits. And if you think it's just because you should be telling people the truth or, or teaching people, eh, watch your motive there a little bit. You know, it's, it's, it, you, you probably will still have an angle with whatever you want to write some nonfiction about. And, you know, you can open yourself up quite a bit um, to truth by writing fiction and, and to, to any of these other things that you want to explore. And so it, it was kind of a fun conversation, but I, I do think my answer would be different now. I think that was a little high and mighty of me to, to put it that way. Even though I kind of feel that way, I think it doesn't capture some of the nuance that I wanted to want to also throw into this conversation. That ties into one of the things that I'd, I'd kind of written down some little subcategories of reasons why I read fiction. And one of them was, I kind of just called it mystery and striving. And I think that might tie a little bit into what you were saying, Trevor, of this idea that there's not a universal truth. It's just that idea of, you know, trying and looking and, and there's all these unknowns out there. And so I was I showed you guys before we started recording, I, there's a couple of books that I have that I was kind of looking at that I've read. And one of them is called Why I Read, The Serious Pleasures of Books by Wendy Lesser. And it's really good. And she has a couple of quotes that I think tie in. And, and she says, when it comes to literature, we're all groping in the dark. 
even the writer, especially the writer, and that is a good thing. Maybe one of the best things about literature, it's always an adventure of some kind. Hmm. And I really like that idea of yeah. we're growing in the dark and that's a good thing. And that's kind of one of the things, Ben, you <laughs> mentioned how your views on reading fiction have kind of evolved over time. It starts out maybe immersive in literature and escape, or I mean, not literature, uh, immersive and escapism and things like that. And not that that's not still part of it, but over time, maybe it changes a little bit. And more and more, I find myself kind of drawn towards that idea of just, yeah, groping in the dark. I really liked that. I love that. When you were talking about um, the distinction between fiction and nonfiction, a number of things crossed my mind, but uh, among them were, I, I am a fairly fierce advocate of the notion that one should not learn history through fiction, that it may spark an interest in an era, mm -hmm. a place, a people, but but to take it as gospel is is a little bit dangerous. Um, so you're I, not giving James Michener the uh, the authority to teach you all of Hawaii, <laughs> correct? Correct. Yeah. And I, and and on that note, Olga Tokarczuk. Also, I I have been um, part of the reason I'm able to keep track of things is that I've been looking up other sources of of about these people. So I'm 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 with you, and I'm sorry sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. I I, I was just going to say that it, at the same time, and Trevor, this goes to something you had said. You certainly can't take any book of history and think of it as definitive. I mean, there are so many different perspectives and motivations that go into not only the creation of history, but the events as they unfolded, that uh, to, to think that you have an all-encompassing understanding after looking at one or two books is, is somewhat ridiculous. Um, Benjamin Dreyer, whom I think you all know from Twitter, the chief copy editor at mm -hmm. Random House. He's quite a funny guy. Uh, a long time ago, he he tweeted something, and I don't know that he would stick with this uh, if if pressed today. But he said, you know, his the the uh, his biggest secret is there's no such there is no difference between fiction or and nonfiction. <laughs> that everything is fiction in some sense of the world, uh, word rather. Um, so it's kind of an extreme view of it. Uh, but <laughs> it gave me a chuckle, and I, I understood where he was coming from. Well, well that I kind of reminds a me bit of a. Sorry, go ahead, Paul. I was going to say that kind of reminds me of uh, Benjamin Labatute. You know, when we cease to mm -hmm. understand the world, we were just talking what about a that. What great and, book! Yeah, it's such an amazing book, and. What did he say? 95% of it could probably be classified as nonfiction, but then there's like a 5% or maybe it's more than that, that is just made up. And he doesn't specify where that right. happens really. And I, I do think that this whole idea is very intriguing and I like to see that more and more authors, I mean, it's probably always been done, but I feel like there has been a movement lately where, you know, you don't necessarily always have to define these things. Yeah. I read, um, Benjamin Labatut's book right after having read another book that does the same thing in a very different way. And that was Norm MacDonald's Based on a True Story, <laughs> which is a heavily fictionalized uh, memoir that is, it, I, I've, after his passing, saw passed off as an actual memoir in multiple obituaries. And I thought, oh man, you guys just have no clue, do you? <laughs> 
Well, maybe without getting too meta, maybe we're already there a little bit. You know, I kind of look at it that way too. As I sit there in my living room reading, I'm just reading words on a page. Um, Whether those words convey something that actually happened or something that has not happened, it's kind of just me there, right? In my bedroom or in my living room or wherever I'm at reading them. And it's it's how those words affect me and direct me that makes the difference. And, and whether they they in, in, in instigate further exploration into history or into people, that's where so much of this becomes valuable. Rather than just taking anything that I read as the one and only, you know, truth, and sometimes even being challenged on the last page, you know, of the the, like the Labatut book, you know, the first section, there's only one paragraph of that that's false, he says. The second one, uh, lots of it is. And you're like, well, you didn't say which was it. So I've, I've spent a lot of time since reading that book exploring more about these people and about their, because some of them were so poetic in their, in their scientific musings and, and, and despair that it was, in, you know, I had to continue on. I had to. And had, honestly, had he simply said, this is the way it was, I might not have had that hook to just mm-hmm. to, to, to feel the, the, the push to dig in myself. I'm not sure if that's why he did it that way, but it certainly had that effect on me, a, a desire to, to further explore and understand and maybe come to different ideas than what I got when reading his book. But all starting because I was just sitting there reading, you know, something that was intriguing to me. Absolutely. Well, let's see. Um, some other some other thoughts you guys might have. I we, we've covered a lot. I'm assuming yeah, we could break this into a whole podcast series. Honestly, we could talk about memoirs, you know, and the and the the scandals that have sometimes happened in the past. When oh, that little episode of your life didn't happen that way or didn't happen at all. Um, but I don't necessarily feel like we need to go there today to keep on talking about the beauty of fiction. And we can even, if you guys are, are wanting to, we can even turn this into some particular experiences we've had where we've recognized that struck me in a way that, you know, I'm going to put truth in quotes here because, you know, maybe it wasn't true, but just struck us in a way that was that was true to us and and, and truly affected us or something like that. I don't, whatever you guys want to do and listeners, I apologize for, for us kind of just freewheeling this conversation, but I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. I I would say that there are moments that I think back on where I can feel what I'm reading, rewiring Mm -hmm. my brain, Mm -hmm. you know, occasionally there's, there's some music that will do that. Uh, But, but there are also a number of novels of late, uh, the Country of Ice Cream Star by Sandra Newman, which is written a bit in the mode of Ridley Walker, um, the Russell Hoban novel. Both of them are are written in these uh, made up dialects, and and it takes a while to get into the swim of it. it it's a bit like Mrs. Dalloway in that way, although it's because of the language as opposed to. Um, the way, well, it's because of the, it's because of the dialect and you can feel yourself becoming more and more, uh, absorbed as your brain catches on with what Newman or Hoban are trying to do. Um, 
I felt a bit the same way with, this is a long time ago, but Martin Amos's Time's Arrow, which is told from the perspective of a being that that uh, is born when a man dies and moves backwards through his life. Um, and you can just feel yourself getting pulled into a completely different kind of mode of thinking in those <clears throat> moments. The Benjamin Labatut book, as you read it, you almost realize that some of these scientists needed to enter the realm of fiction in order to make their breakthroughs, you know, that they had to rewire their brain. They had to rewire the way they were looking at things to not just accept the found wisdom, but to be able to, to think, you know, in terms of going backwards in time as a, as a basic, you know, concept or, um, you know, and you kind of get the sense that for them that was uh, quite existentially um, shaking and and problematic. But yeah, that that rewiring of the brain um, happening can sometimes only happen when we get away from what we think is truth, or the 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 only way for truth to be to be seen out there. Well, and I think too, along the same lines or similar lines, you know, during the the pandemic, during I, you know, when we were all so isolated. Um, I read a lot of Proust during that time and talk about rewiring your brain because already our society was kind of being forced to examine this fast, high paced way that we live our lives and constantly driving places and running errands and everything. And so during a time when that was already forcibly taken away from us, then to be reading Proust at the same time where, you know, famously he will spend pages and pages and pages just on one memory or one, you know, some sunlight coming through the window and, hitting on the wall, that whole idea of rewiring your brain, that was really impactful for me of the combination of those two factors of just not only is it okay, but it's actually very healthy and rewarding to slow down, you know, and just focus on one thing, you know, that idea of long concentration or even daydreaming. So that would be another example that <clears throat> brings to mind for me. And that one feels very much like a rewiring because mm -hmm. it probably, I don't know, there, there was some interesting, um, things I read, I think in the New York times about our experience with time in mm -hmm. the pandemic and how it's different from other times. And so, yeah, reading Proust can, can, I, I believe actually affect the way that you spend your day when you're not reading Proust, not just the things you do, but the way you perceive <laughs> the time, the passage of time and the people walking around you. Yeah, absolutely. It's so fascinating. Do you, are, are you familiar with Shelby Foote? the novelist and historian who wrote the massive uh, Civil War, multi-volume Civil War history that was quite popular, especially in like yeah. the 1970s, 80s. Yeah. He, he uh, was on an interview program on C-SPAN at some point, may have been in the 90s, maybe a little bit later than that, uh, at his home. We were allowed to go to his home. This is before I was with the network. And he had Proust up on his bookshelves and the interviewer, Brian Lamb, asked him, you know, how many times have you read that? And he said, I've read it nine times. He, wow. he, had, <laughs> he went back after every book he wrote and reread Proust um, for that very reason. It settled him and it mm -hmm. gave him uh, the sensation of just being able to absorb each minute for what it is. I actually think I, I I may have seen that on YouTube. 
Because I do. I love... Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Shelby Foote, you know, as, as we're talking here, and I had not thought of him and his work in, conjun- in conjunction with this, but there's someone who, when they're talking about events or, you know, writing about true events, he got so poetic sometimes <clears throat> that he did have that magic of fiction that I get mostly with fiction in helping me to understand and start to capture a little bit more. So, so he would be a good counterpoint. I don't think he'd want to be a counterpoint to not reading fiction. That's not what I mean, but he would be definitely a good example to hold up and say, well, you can get some of those same things from someone like Shelby foot with his exceptionally empathetic portrayal of the past. Um, I, I love listening to him. Um, but it sounds like maybe some of his tools he got from, from fiction writers. So, so can I bring up another idea? I don't want to get too highfalutin here, but <clears throat> when Ben mentioned the whole idea of Shelby Foote rereading that as a resettling and reading it over his lifetime, I think one thing that fiction can really do is, it, I don't know if mortality is the right word for it, but for me, that's something I think about a lot when I'm reading these books as you revisit them at different periods in your life. And not to keep pulling out quotes, but there's another quote from that book, that uh, from that uh, Wendy Lesser book that I just wanted to touch on really quick. She says, reading and literature is a way of reaching back to something bigger and older and different. It can give you the feeling that you belong to the past as well as the present, and it can help you realize that your present will someday be someone else's past. This may be disheartening, but it can also be strangely consoling at times. And to me, that is a major factor. You know, not that any of us are old, but as I get older, it's definitely something I think (laughs) about of just how she says it's strangely consoling. I find that a lot, like as you're just groping with different things, the busyness of life, the you know, a, a family member dying, whatever the case may be, like literature can be a form of solace in the fact that you realize this has been going on for a long, long time. It will continue to go on when you're gone. And so I don't know, I, that's something that definitely draws me to literature more and more as I get older, as we talk about how it's kind of evolved in our lives. Absolutely. You know, the, the other connection between literature and mortality is the growing realization that I'm not going to read even close to everything mm-hmm. I'd like to Right. (laughs) That's kind of how we kicked off this whole thing with our bucket list books too. Yeah. And that's exactly right. I mean, that's, and again, that's strangely consoling to me because the alternative that I would someday run out of all the good books to read and still have like 20 years left, that's horrifying. So it's, it's an interesting (laughs) blend, you know? That's where the gripes for the podcast is, by the way, Ben, we just realized it. The gripes is Paul and I griping about the passage of time while still trying to come to terms with it and and appreciate it for what it is. That's right. To find that fountain of youth, just so we can read more books. So can I read one quote that I ran across just by happenstance last week that I think fits this perfectly? Uh, Absolutely. I was reading Leonora Carrington's The Hearing Trumpet published by our good friends at NYRB Classics. Your good friends. I'm just really an admirer. And (laughs) uh, there's an afterwards by Olga Tokarczyk, who uh, you had mentioned earlier, Trevor. I've only read uh, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, which I absolutely loved, but look forward to reading Book of Jacobs and Flights as well. And in her afterwards, she wrote this. Why do we read novels in the first place? 
Inevitably, among the many true responses will be, we read novels to gain a broader perspective on everything that happens to people on Earth. Our own experience is too small, our beings too helpless to make sense of the complexity and enormity of the universe. We desire to see life up close, to get a glimpse of the existences of others. Do we have anything in common with them? Are they anything like us? We are seeking a shared communal order, each of us a stitch in a piece of knitted fabric. In short, we expect novels to put forward certain hypotheses that might tell us what's what. And banal as it might sound, this is a metaphysical question. On what principles does the world operate? I loved that, and it actually reminded me a lot of something that um, D.G. Myers, who was a professor at a uh, university in Texas before he passed away far too young a number of years ago, always used to write that uh, in fiction, plot is argument. You know, the the way that, that someone frames and structures their story is, is an <clears throat> argument about something. And reading Takarzik's perspective, it really came back to me. That is... Awesome that you brought up uh, D.G. Myers and that thought. For for whatever reason, my I have some of those notes too of of fiction as an argument and that the, the plot structure as an exploration and argument and that that is a valuable thing even within you know the within any kind of fiction. Um, and I hadn't really wrestled with that or with you know thought too much. Not I, I think about him. Uh, relatively frequently, but not as much as I used to when, when he was around and you could chat. Um, but I think that's awesome that he came out in this particular conversation that way. <laughs> I don't know if you knew him, Paul. Um, he oh. did, uh, he had a blog that <clears throat> right now I'm struggling to think of the name of his blog, um, but very articulate, very feisty, and also very, very fun-minded, like if someone would argue with him, man, I wish I could argue back the way he did, because it wasn't aggressive. It was mm. with cleverness and wit. And, it, it, yeah, I, I, I like And he had I kind like of him. a Socratic uh, way mm-hmm. of, of interacting with people on Twitter and, and on his blog. It, he was a fascinating guy. I know he was the, or at least a mentor to Michael Schaub, who's one of the uh, NPR's main critics um, when he was in college. And uh, yeah, I thought he was a very interesting mind and certainly interesting presence. Well, so I do want to step back a little bit too, because I the one thing I've, I've been checking through my notes here is... The smug attitude to say that the purpose for reading fiction is at best entertainment, as if that were not a valid reason in and of itself. Again, I think in all of our entertainment, it it does entertain us because it strikes some chords, it's fun, it's interesting, it, it excites us. And I thought, one of the reasons I love this so much is it makes me wonder why, why does this particular thing enthuse me or entertain me versus something that entertains someone else that doesn't work on me. And even that being kind of a valuable thing. Um, my wife will talk about that sometimes um, because she she uh, is a writer and an 
avid reader and some of the things that she that make her want to write are things that she's like why does that make me want to write it's kind of a dumb it's kind of a dumb book i read it as a you know in quotes again a guilty pleasure why does that also make me excited to to write and all this and it's just fun to explore those aspects of ourselves and come up with those answers there's a way of digging into myself as much as there is in in empathizing with other people or broadening my experience with other people but also bringing it back home to who am i and what 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 makes me tick and what what brings me about what are some vulnerabilities that i would never understand if it weren't for reading some of these things and understanding why it appeals to me um and i i, I like that aspect of it too and i think entertainment can be a big part of that understanding of ourselves if we're mindful about it and i'm not always of course i sometimes just like to blow some time <laughs> you know <Right>. but <laughs> yeah i like that i mean you think back to some of the books that originally hooked you like you were talking about ben dragon lance or, or one that i was thinking of that the transitional book for a lot of people our age and i think still somebody like stephen king where you know he's a good transitional book from maybe like what you would think of as elementary school middle school books he's a big jump up into like grown-up fiction you know whatever that means and so when i think back of like what you were saying what makes me really love reading it, it has been different authors inspiring me at different times but you find that right book at the right time and it just propels you forward to the next and it's just opening up whole new worlds and and um you know it just kind of blows your mind you realize i've thought reading was this and then all of a sudden I pick up a Stephen King book at a certain age and I'm like, oh, geez, I didn't even know this was possible. And then, you know, five years later, I go to college and I start reading The Odyssey and I say, oh, my God, I didn't even know this was possible. And so it just each time it like branches out and opens up and it can go all kinds of different directions. And to me, that's what's so fun and exciting about all of it. And then you reread Stephen King as an adult and you go, the whoa man <laughs> I know. Why did this appeal? You know, there's some some pretty awful weird <laughs> Uh, and you have to grapple with that a little right. bit. At least I do. I know you want to do an, an author focus on Stephen King, and I got to admit, I, I I I always enjoy his stuff, and I always feel like I shouldn't. Right after I'm done, well, because of some of the stuff that he he chooses to the way he chooses to to go over things, and I think that that's an interesting thing for me to try to grapple with. Well, especially now as my kids are at the <laughs> age, or even past the age where I was starting to read it, and I'm thinking about them reading it, and I'm like, wow. Yeah, so like you said, it, it does. It just opens up some different possibilities. <laughs> yeah, I didn't read him. Well, this I didn't read any of his iconic horror novels until I was in my 30s and 40s. Um, I started reading Salem's Lot when I was probably 12, and I got to a scene that was somewhat racy and was so embarrassed I put it down and <laughs> didn't go back to it until I was old enough to deal with it, maybe 42. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I have derived an immense amount of pleasure, uh, far more than I would have anticipated uh, over the last 10 years going through those early books, those kind of like the early, late 70s, early 80s books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you talk about reading experiences that have been like, signpost in your life and and reading it at the age of 13 or 14 you know too young that's but, what i read um, i mean i was just there's certain scenes from that book that have made indelible images in my mind and i'll be curious like 10 years from now if any of the books i'm reading now will have any kind of 
a visceral impact like some of those books did when I was younger. But yeah, it, it when it comes to just something that sticks with you through your entire life, somebody like him can really have a big impact at a certain time. I, I wish I had stuck with it when I was 12, 13 years old, because I, I can only imagine how much I would have enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good question too, Paul, because we've all kind of touched on as a as a youth, some of these things you just get you just get you in a way that they don't anymore. And so that another question is, you know, what are some books I've read as an adult that do a similar thing? And one that popped into my mind is another one that could be a good candidate for, you know, fiction, nonfiction, and that's um Roberto Bolaños two six six six. There are some parts of that book that still, you know, s- stick out. Almost as much as when the the girl, the woman in it, goes back to the house and is talking to you know the person who's there now and is all pleasant, and all of a sudden everything starts to to deteriorate around. The, I remember that so well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and, but but definitely some scenes in in Roberto Bolaños twenty six sixty six have done similar things, but it, it is a little more rare, I think, as an adult for those yeah. things to stick in that way. Mm-hmm. I think that Piranesi is one oh. that will likely stick with me in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I love Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, or Norrell, however one says it, and I do, Piranesi was just an absolute masterpiece. Um, and Hernan Diaz uh, in the distance mm-hmm. is another one that I, I suspect 20 years from now I'll look back on. I still haven't heard um, that. Uh, Steve Erickson's Zeroville. Uh, J.G. Farrell's Empire Trilogy. I, I, I could go on and on in this. You're going to get me to read that one soon, Ben. That one. Oh. I keep mentioning it. Every time I'm like, I got to read it soon. Yeah, those are some remarkable books. So, And again, where he's taking, you know, I guess they're historical fiction. So, But where he yeah. is writing about real things in a fictional way. Um, you know one that, that sticks with me? And I've only read it a couple years ago, so I don't know how long it'll last. But it's um, Duck's Newburyport by Lucy Elman. And it's very different. It's not a plot driven reason that it would stick with you. And it's not necessarily one scene, but talk about experimenting with what fiction can do. Boy, that book is just mind blowing. It's just, you know, everybody probably knows by now they've at least heard about it if they haven't read it, where it, the, the con the conceit is basically one long, you know, sentence. I mean, it's not truly that, but basically it is. And it's just these repetitions and it's an internal dialogue that just goes on for something like eight or 900 pages. You want to talk about something you can't get anywhere else as far as immersive being inside somebody else's mind. By the time I finished that book, you kind of have to sit down for a while and just kind of reassess like where you, where you end and she begins kind of thing. It's, it's amazing. So that would be one that would stick with me from maybe a little bit different perspective. And then if we're talking about other books that we've read in the last 20 years, you know, I think we're all fans of Lonesome Dove. I mentioned that probably every other podcast, but that was on my, it's sitting five feet from me and I will get to it shortly. Okay. I really need to. I thought you'd read that one. Yeah. I mean, not obviously I won't go on and on, but can't, can't recommend that one highly enough. And I'm glad you mentioned Susanna Clark because Piranesi or, I mean, for me, probably Jonathan Strange, as far as just a visceral memory in my mind might be stronger. I remember reading that one. Our kids were, when our oldest son was a baby, and I remember like it was in the fall. I've told I've told Trevor it feels like a fall winter book to me, and that's because that's when I read it. And just some of the the scenes out of that book, you know, 
will stick with me forever. So yeah, it is interesting. I do think it can happen as you get older, but I don't know. It's kind of like with music where maybe it takes a very, very unique experience to really make that same impression as you get older. Oh boy. Well, I already brought up a few of the ones that really stick out to me. I I mean, I, and we talked about William Trevor's The Piano Tuner's Wives on our short story episode. Oh, the things that that story did and continue to do to me and how brilliantly it's laid out and how there is no other way possible to get into the head of, of that character than through fiction because she mm-hmm. herself is not even acknowledging what she's feeling and going through. It's just beautiful. And then I have um, Middlemarch as well, which just, Oh, I, I love Middlemarch so much and definitely has had a substantial effect on me and the way that I see people. And so I'm going to read the last the last paragraph really fast as a quote from uh, uh, that I think encapsulates so much of this that I've been kind of feeling or, or skirting around or maybe maybe I've touched on it. Maybe I've succeeded in, in saying it outright, but I, I kind of doubt it. <laughs> um but I think this quote uh, is talking about uh, Dorothea, the one of the main characters. I mean, kind of the main character, but there's so many wonderful characters here. It's hard to say she's the only one, but it's talking about her as the events of this novel start to recede into the past for her and her life progresses. And then, you know, by the time George Eliot wrote this, this is a historical novel um, for his, for George Eliot too. You know, this, this book took place, what, a half a century before... Um, she wrote it as far as um, writing it in, you know, what the 1860s and I think it takes place in the 1820s. And it says her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that river of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. I love the the way that this book ends with this statement of, you don't know Dorothea, you don't know any of these people, but they lived and they had a major effect on you and your life and maybe, you know, maybe made it even a little bit better. And now they, they live in, or they rest in unvisited tombs. This is our memory of them. You know, it's fake. It's not real. These people didn't exist, but they did. You know, mm-hmm. they did. In some way they did. And it, we need to be able to to grapple with some of that stuff. Did this story of something happening contemporarily, did it happen? No, but it did. It does. It is. It it. This is a way to explore so many forces that are going on in my own life as I'm becoming a different person every day, growing, um, as well as connecting with those around me who are going through similar experiences often in the inside, often unacknowledged and often invisible, even to ourselves. And this is a great way to, to work that out and have a lot of fun, hopefully while doing it. Um, but you know, I, I love, I love Middlemarch and I had actually forgotten about that quote at the end until I was just kind of glancing through it and thought, Oh, this, this is, 
this is a lot what 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 we're talking about a unhistoric lives you know the un, the unhistoric now you're gonna have to you're gonna have to add a spoiler warning to this episode <laughs> particularly for uh, uh john williams from the new york times who i believe is reading it right now oh no mm. sorry john yeah the um <laughs> I mean, you, when you get there, you'll get there, and it's just awesome. Mm, yeah. <laughs> oh well. Any other thoughts? I know I kind of jumped into to my uh, my my finale with Middlemarch, which I think is a good place for me to end. But I didn't want that to be the um, the end for you guys. If there were still some things you wanted to touch on or books you wanted to talk about. No, I mean, I I think that's a great way to end it. I mean, that really is, like I said what appeals to me is just, I mean, I don't know if I could put it any better than you just did. I, I think it's just that whole idea of fiction can, can give you these insights into these people who maybe did never exist, but it's just the humanity behind it all. Um, and sometimes that comes in the form of fun and mystery or adventure. Sometimes it comes in those, those quiet, unhistoric lives. And I think that's kind of the power of fiction is it can, it can be all of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's perfect. Very well said. All right. Well, we we can end with some recommendations uh, today, uh, Ben. Since since you're our guest, we'll start with you. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? I do. Other than know, all the things you have already, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I was trying to think about narrow down what I wanted to recommend, and I decided to do something that was a not a book. And different than anything that we've been talking about right now. And it, it's actually a, another podcast. But don't worry, it's not a competitor, at least not a direct competitor. <laughs> I was going to say, cut uh, him off, Trevor, hurry. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's called Death in the West. And it's hmm. put together by uh, four Montanans, although I believe one, at least one lives in Oregon now. And they're on their second season. The first season was about the uh, still unsolved murder of a famous labor activist in uh, 1917 in Butte, Montana. And over the course of a few episodes, they put together a vision of the American labor movement in the early 20th century, the Butte, Montana, which is a fascinating place in the early 20th century, the Copper Kings, the economic uh, um, economic disparities at play, and this entirely different world, or and different than anything that we've experienced in our lifetime, and they convey it in the most compelling way possible through interviews, archival audio. Uh, and, and storytelling. One of the people who puts it together is, in fact, a novelist, Chad Dundas, a good novelist. Um, and, and their second episode, is, their second season, rather, just started, and they're using as the the hook the um, hijacking, the D.B. Cooper hijacking. And they're talking about how uh, air travel changed America. And, and it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I, I think it's one of the best nonfiction podcasts, uh, nonfiction narrative podcasts that I've listened to in quite a long time. And again, it's called Death in the West. 
Oh, I haven't heard about that at all. Thank you. I haven't <laughs> yeah, oh, that sounds like really that. fascinating. <clears throat> How about you, Paul? Well, I will. Uh, I will recommend a book. Actually, um, the Birds by Tarje Vesos. It's uh, Archipelago edition is the one I read. Uh, so Vesos was a Norwegian poet and novelist. I guess considered maybe one of Norway's greatest writers of the 20th century, and some even say maybe ever. Um, which is kind of crazy because I know he's well known in our circles, but it's one of those that kind of could disappear, you know, if it wasn't for some of these publishers. So none other than Karl Ove Knausgaard described this book as the best Norwegian novel ever. He says, it is absolutely wonderful. The prose is so simple and so subtle. And the story is so moving that it would have been counted amongst the great classics from the last century if it had been written in one of the major languages. So this was one that it had been sitting on my archipelago pile for quite a long time, but something finally prompted me to pick it up. And man, I'm so glad I did. I loved it. Uh, just real briefly, it tells the story of a brother and sister, Mattis and Hega, and they lived together in this small little cottage or house in the Norwegian countryside. And the story is narrated by Mattis, who we quickly come to realize, you know, is intellectually disabled. You know, he's very attuned. He's very sensitive. And so he's always looking and trying to analyze what other people are thinking, but we come to realize often maybe he's not getting exactly what might really be happening. Um, and so because we're presented with all this world strictly from his perspective, we often get these very inaccurate perceptions of what's going on, but it's just fascinating the way it's done. Um, so at one point, you know, this woodcock flies over their house and to him, this is just, this groundbreaking, almost like religious experience. He's so excited that it flew right over their house. And so he rushes in, you know, to tell his sister all about it. And she says, let's talk about this in the morning, Mattis. Go to bed now. Do you hear? It says to Mattis, it sounded like madness, throwing away a chance like this. I'm telling you, it's going on now. And you don't want to come out and see? I can't understand you. Nothing seems to mean anything to you. And so it's just like this really interesting, it's, it's very simple language. But by the time this short book is over, it's just stunning what, what he can do with these two characters. So, you know, I won't go on and on about it, but um, man, if you get a chance, I would definitely pick this book up. And, and apparently he has another one called the ice palace, which several people have told me is actually their preferred book over the birds. So one of those two books, if you see one, pick it up and, and give it a try. It's really good. Huh. I haven't read either, either of those. Yeah, yeah. I, He's new to me. I don't know him. That sounds great. It's really good. Awesome. All right. Well, I will give my recommendation. And Paul, you might feel targeted here. No, not, not on purpose. I, okay. <laughs> I, I have pretty thick skin by now, so it's a uh, it's Macbeth, <laughs> but it's the uh, the new um, Joel Cohen um, uh, directed adaptation of Macbeth of, of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Paul, the reason you know for listeners' sake that y- y- I said you might feel targeted is we all know you've got your Shakespeare project, and I've been I've been kind of poking a little bit to say, hey, what are you going to read, Paul? What's your first one? What's your first one? And yeah. that's why you might feel a little targeted. But right. I, that's good motivation. If <laughs> even if you don't read it first, um, I definitely recommend checking out the film. It is... Uh, I loved it. It is um, pretty stunningly shot in black and white, but not... You know, it's not... It, in a film like that, you know, when you know the content of Macbeth, you, all, you might think, oh, it must be really, really shadowy. And it, it kind of isn't. It's bright white. I mean, it's mm. it's like Larissa Shapitko's the, the Ascent where that 
that one takes place a lot in the snow and it's black and white. And so the snow just takes over the screen and you've got these little figures playing out their roles in it or amongst branches or something like that. In this one, there's a lot of clouds and, and dark ravens. And, and a lot of times the actors will be kind of walking toward the camera through the fog where they finally come out. And so it's, it's just a lot of whiteness and it's, it's stunning. And of course, the, you know, the Coen brothers have, have dealt with this material, this similar type of material of someone just overreaching a little bit to terrible and disastrous and violent <laughs> um, ends for a little bit of power or money. I mean, for, back from the beginning, you know, from Blood Simple on, mm-hmm. um, some of my favorite movies, you know, with uh, with, with them are, are dealing with this. And we talked about No Country for Old Men in our Cormac McCarthy episode. And here, here it's like, oh, we'll go back just to one of the one of the seminal texts of of power and and wanting, you know, more than being willing to do kind of whatever in order to obtain it. And it's it's pretty violent. Um, the, the, I won't go into too much detail, but the the witches, just seeing how they do the witches is it's awesome i loved it i loved it so so there you go there's my recommendation for joel cohen's macbeth and i hope uh i hope you give it a shot even if you haven't read the 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 play yet paul of course you could save it until after you've read it you know whenever you get to it too but i can't wait to watch it excursion i can't either that might have inspired me to to see if i can watch it tonight actually because Obviously, I read that clear back in college or whatever, but that would be a great way to kind of kickstart. Yeah. And it's something I've been wanting to do anyway. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. And it's it's so well done. I mean, they're, they've always been so good at directing actors. And, you know, Joel, it, it isn't the Coen brothers this time. It's just Joel Cohen. But I, I just thought they all did a wonderful job um, throughout it. And it respects the material while still tweaking it just a little bit in interesting ways to to make, you know, make you kind of wonder huh, that's a little bit of a different way to look at that character. Some of the new the new stuff they put in uh, about some, you know, like Ross, for example, who's always there, but just kind of as a bit of a, you know, side character in a, in a way. He's got a very different dimension in this in this film that's just fun to fun to explore. So nice. let me know if you if you watch it, what you think. I will. <laughs> All right. Well, Guys, it was awesome to to get together this morning. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome at any time. It was a delight. It's so nice to, you know, we've talked online, but it's always nice to sit down and chat with somebody and realize, ah, they are just as amiable and, and mm. nice to talk to. And um, we could all go out and have dinner together and enjoy our time um, just like I thought we could. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Love to come thanks, back ben. someday. This has been great. All right. Well, listeners, we will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. We've been working on our schedule. Um, so, But right now, I honestly can't remember what we're talking about next. Is it Comfort Reads, Paul? Are we doing that? for? I think for that's Patton? next. I think All so. Right. All right. If not, I'm wrong, but we'll be... <clears throat> I know that one's coming up. So you can also, listeners, um, send us in your Comfort Reads, either on email or on Twitter or on Instagram, wherever you can find us. Let us know what you, what you think of as a comfort read and, and what some of your suggestions might be. So thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. 
You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com mooks. Until next time, 